This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. In the Ten Commandments, we receive a description of God and specifically his relationship with mankind. And that has to do with the verse as it says, God visits the sins, the iniquities upon the children, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren, four generations, and he rewards for 2,000 generations. So it's very clear from the verses that God pays back evil, bad, for four generations, and things that are done according to his will, obeying his commandments, he'll pay back for 2,000 generations. Rashi, one of the commentaries on the verse, explains that what the Torah here is teaching us is not merely the reward and punishment system, but rather something far more important. And he explains, do the math. If God visits the sins upon four generations and pays back the reward for 2,000 generations, four to 2,000 is a ratio of one to 500. What the Torah is teaching us is one of the basic bedrock systems with which God created the world. And that is that there's a balance. As everything in the world has certain measures and certain parameters, there's a balance in the world between good and evil, and between the amount of repayment of bad and repayment of evil, and that measurement is 500 to 1. Meaning to say, for every measure of bad that you'll find in the world, every measure of suffering you'll find opposite that 500 times the good. And this is a bedrock foundational principle with which God created the world. 500 times the good as to the bad, that applies to every part of this world. We're not referring to reward in the world to come. We're referring to one of the basic fundamental foundational principles with which God created the world, 500 times the good to the bad. Now, if you think about this, comment of Rashi and his understanding of the verse, it should be rather perplexing. Because 500 times the good to the bad means that for every headache I've ever suffered, there'll be 500 times the benefits and enjoyments in the world. For every toothache that I've ever had, there'll be 500 times more pleasures. Now, life is beautiful, life is nice, but there are few people I know who can walk around and say, wow, Life, astonishing, pleasures after pleasures, whiff after whiff, wave after wave of just unending enjoyment. Life is wonderful, but at the end of the day, there are good spots, there are bad spots, there are hardships, there are troubles. And while it may be true that a person will enjoy his life, and it will be true that a person will have a sense of pleasure, to say that his pleasures in this world outweigh his troubles, his pains, 500 to 1, doesn't seem to relate to the life that we lead. If you told me it was 2 to 1, 10 to 1, 500 to 1 means they're so overshadowed, any pain, any trouble that you've ever had in your life is so overshadowed by the amount of joy and pleasure that you have, 500 to 1 sounds very difficult to understand. And I'd like to see if we can, in fact, better understand this verse And in fact, what the commentary Rashi is explaining to us. And to do that, I'd like to begin with a parable. I want you to imagine the following. 
Imagine you have a man who had perfect sight until the age of 35, he went blind. And he had to relearn to do everything in his life now without sight. He was a fighter, and he put together a real effort, and in fact, that's what he did. He learned how to navigate the world, he learned how to earn a living, he sort of rebuilt his life, but now again in a very different modality, complete blackness without any vision. And he lived that way for 10 years. After that 10-year period, he hears about an experimental procedure. In theory, the procedure succeeds, it'll reconnect his optic nerve, he'll be able to see again, however, it's very dangerous, it may fail. He consults with his clergy, he consults with his family, he decides to undergo the operation. And he's wheeled into the operating room, put under anesthetic, and he's out for 10 hours. When he awakens, the bandages are on his eyes, and he clenches his fists, and he's preparing himself to know how he's going to see the world now, and he opens his eyes, they don't move, nurse, nurse, he cries out. Nurse comes running, what is it, what is it? I I can't open my eyes. Relax, the nurse says. 72 hours for the operation to heal, you can't move until then, we can't take off the bandages. So he waits, three days, hour after hour, in anxious anticipation, with the following question in mind, how will I spend the rest of my life, sighted or blind? Finally, at the end of the three days, with the doctors and nurses at his bed, his family gathers round, the nurse pulls off one bandage, she pulls off a second bandage, he opens his eyes and he sees colors, dimensions, textures, the faces of loved ones he hasn't seen in 10 years. He looks out the window and he sees the the sun, he sees clouds, he sees a meadow, he sees grass. With tears in his eyes, he says, Doctor, doctor, what could I ever do to rethank you for this gift of sight? In Jewish thought, we're told that that emotion, that elation, that joy that that man experienced is something that we are supposed to experience not once a year, not once a month, but on a daily basis. There's a string of blessings that we say every day, one of which is, I thank God for giving sight to the blinded. But it's supposed to be said with an outpouring of emotion, with a sense of appreciation of, look at this wondrous gift of sight. And it's an interesting thing that we human beings can have tremendous blessings and never once appreciate it and never once give thanks. How many times have you and I stopped to say the words, look at this, I have mobility, hands with which to feel, legs with which to walk, I have a sense of hearing, I have my acuity, my mental acuity, my physical well-being, thank God. Astonishingly, not only isn't there a sense of natural appreciation and joy that should come, typically it's only when something is taken, then right away the complaints find their home. God, why me? Of the seven billion occupants on a planet, why do you choose me? But until then, there was never a thanks. But more than never a thanks, there was never even appreciation of it being a gift. And I believe that this is a rather interesting phenomenon. If you just study the life that we lead, you'll find untold amounts of pleasures that we don't even focus on and we don't even realize. And I want to really take this to one more extent. I want you to imagine what it was like before God created the world. 
If you close your eyes and imagine that moment, and then open your eyes, you'll come to a very important understanding. You see, everything that God created had no precedent, had nothing to imitate. There was no status quo to be similar to, because there was nothing. Everything that man creates is creative in name, but is largely imitative, taking on forms of things he's seen before. But everything that you and I see was created by God from scratch, without a recipe, without anything to compare it to. And if you take that incredibly important step of imagining what life was like before God created the physical world, and then look at the physical world, I believe you'll find something very, very astonishing. And that is that so many features in the world that we live in have no functional benefit Meaning to say, from a utilitarian standpoint, from a need standpoint, they just aren't needed. Let me explain to you what I mean. In the world is something called color. Color. Brilliant colors. Purples, reds, greens, oranges. I remember when my daughter went to nursery and I discovered that there are four shades of teal. If you open up the color palette in Microsoft Word, they offer you 16 million colors. Here's the question. Why is color needed? A black and white world would function fully well. I hate to admit this here, but I grew up on black and white TV. And you could tell the full human drama, the good guys, the bad guys, the emotions, everything could be seen within the spectrum of the grayscale. What do you need color for? And the answer is, from a utilitarian functional standpoint, you don't need color. The world would function very well. You could go about your business and do everything that you need to do in black and white. But a black and white world isn't as beautiful as a world replete with color. And if you'd like to understand why God created this entity called color, it's so that you and I should benefit. We should look out at a sunrise and say, wow. We should look at a floral scene and say, that's magnificent. And we should look under the ocean and see the dynamic colors that we should watch the fall tapestry as those trees turn oranges and yellows. There's one purpose in that for you and I to enjoy because from a standing functional standpoint, there's no need for it. There's no reason for it. And if you begin looking at many, many of the features in this world, you will find exactly this point. From a functional utilitarian standpoint, they weren't needed. But God created them for one reason, so that you and I should enjoy, that our stay on this planet should be pleasurable. And if you start looking out about the scenes of this world, from the Alps to the oceans, to the beauty of a sunset, and you see so much effort that was put into making a beautiful world. When you look out at a forest and you're just, wow, it's magnificent, and you recognize that so much of that beauty was only put there for one reason, so that you and I should benefit. But it's not just sights and not just color that God created specifically for us to enjoy. Let's deal with something called food. Now, by all rights, food should taste All food should taste like soggy cardboard. After all, food is necessary. It's a nutrient. 
If we were hungry, we would eat. The necessary nutrients we would ingest because we need it. So by all rights, all food should taste like, well, I guess maybe brown beans or potatoes, but that's not the way foods taste. There's such an array of different flavors, aromas, and textures in the foods that we eat. And if you focus on this point, that none of it was needed for man's nutrition. All of it was provided so that when I bite into my apple, my pear, my peach, my banana, I should enjoy it. When you focus on that, you begin to get an eye glimpse to the loving kindliness of our Creator and how much He wants us to enjoy our stay on the planet. But it's focusing on the details sometimes that can give us a real insight. Let's focus on an orange for a minute. I once heard Rabbi Miller describe an orange. Now, if you pay careful attention to the orange as you peel the skin off, you'll notice that the orange is arranged in wedges. And if you break open the wedges, you'll see that each wedge is sort of covered by this membrane. If you peel back that membrane, and you probably have to remember being in fourth grade and being bored and peeling back the membrane, you'll note that the juice in the orange is contained in hundreds of little juice sacks. Here's the question. Why is the juice in the orange contained in hundreds of little juice sacks? The answer really is quite simple. If you go into the candy section in your supermarket, you'll see many children's candy that will be advertised with a center of flavor, bite in for a burst of flavor. Well, when you bite into the wedge of orange because you break the juice sacks, you get a burst of flavor that hits your palate. There's as much water or more water contained in a watermelon, but a very different texture. You see, it wasn't enough that the citrusy, delicious, sweet, sort of tangy flavor should be there in the orange. God wanted to enhance our enjoyment, so he used a delivery system of the burst of flavor so that we should further enjoy it. But if you focus on the fact that it's not just different flavors that foods have, foods have different coloring as well. The orange is orange. The apple is, well, many apples are red, but there are 700 types of apples. But let's take a red, delicious apple. Here's the question. Why is the orange orange, and why is the red apple red? So the answer really can be found back in our supermarket. Go up and down the laundry detergent aisles, and you'll find something very, very compelling. Each of the products are put into packages that are typically more expensive than the product inside the packaging. As a matter of fact, Procter & Gamble spent millions of dollars researching which color would have the greatest eye appeal, and Thai detergent is in that neon orange colored package because it has great eye appeal. Consumers will reach for it first. It looks pretty to the eye. If you'd like to know why the banana is yellow, why the orange is orange, why the apple is red, is because it's an enhancement to our enjoyment system. It wasn't enough that the apple should have this delicious flavor. God wanted to enhance our experience, and so he put a beautiful outside packaging to it. Keep in mind, of course, the inside of the peel, which isn't part of the eye appeal, is white or colorless. It's only the outside that makes it look pretty and makes it appealing that has the color. But let's take this one step further. What happens when you bite into that apple? You don't get that burst of flavor. 
You get that crunch. Why did God make the apple go crunch as opposed to, I don't know, the burst of flavor you get from the orange? So again, all you need to do is go to your local supermarket and you'll see the answer to that question. Go to the breakfast cereal aisle and then you'll see 75 feet long, floor to ceiling, each breakfast ceiling bragging one to be crunchier than the other. Crunchy, crunchy. Ours is so crunchy, we include earplugs so your neighbors won't wake up with it. Okay, so here's the question. Why does every single, at least most of the <clears throat> breakfast cereals brag about being crunchy? And the answer is quite simple. When you pour the milk into the cereal and you take a bite of that cornflakes, it has a delicious flavor, but when you crunch there's an additional enjoyment that you have. When my kids are little, <clears throat> are little, if we added the milk more than 20 seconds before the corn, oh my God, it's all soggy, I can't eat it. The reality is it's very enjoyable to crunch on cornflakes. And so God designed the cellular walls of the apples to be brittle so that when you bite into it, you get the crunch. It wasn't enough that the flavor should be vastly different than the orange. <clears throat> it wasn't enough that the color be different to, to add to the eye appeal. God wanted to enhance our enjoyment, and so he made the walls of the cells in such a fashion that we should bite in and enjoy it. But let's stop for one more observation. Let's go back to that orange. What happens when you peel the orange? You ever notice that when you break the peel, there's a sort of fine spray mist that emits from the orange peel? And a very, very unusual thing about that mist, if you get it on your fingers... <clears throat> It tastes bitter. It smells delicious. It smells just like the orange, but it kind of <clears throat> tastes bitter. Why did God design the orange peel to be such that when you break it, you get the mist of the orange smell with a bitter flavor? So the answer to this one is a little bit more complex, but not that, that difficult. The next time you find yourself in a restaurant and you order your favorite dish, but you have a cold and you try to enjoy that dish, and it just doesn't taste right, you'll focus on one single thought. Studies now reveal to us that about 70 to 75% of our sense of taste comes through our sense of smell. You see, the tongue only tastes a limited range of sensations, salt, sour, etc. But the full gamut of the flavor spectrum comes through our sense of smell. And so when you have a cold and your nose is stuffed up, and you can't really enjoy that dish, if you'd like to understand why God put those mists in the orange peel, it's really quite simple. When you break the peel, the mist is emitted and there's a fragrance of the orange. And when you smell the orange and it smells delicious, you hunger a bit more for the orange. You see, it wasn't enough that the flavor of the orange was that tangy, citrusy, sweet flavor. It wasn't enough that it had the perfect color. It wasn't enough that you bit in for the burst of flavor. God wanted to enhance our enjoyment, and so he micro-encapsulated in the peel tiny, tiny little bubbles containing the scent, but not the flavor, because you're not supposed to eat the peel, but just enough so that when you break it, and you break those tiny micro-encapsulations, the mist is emitted, and voila, you smell it, you hunger for the orange, and when you eat it, you enjoy it a bit more. Isn't that astonishing? The amount of thought, the amount of care that went into designing an orange. 
And if you think about cucumbers and peppers and tomatoes, if you think about the vast array of the foods that we eat, a simple salad that you'll sit down to has so many different flavors, aromas, textures, and all of the foods share different elements to them. And if you begin focusing on the vast differences and the careful planning that went into it, at a certain point you step back and say, this is astonishing. What a kindly, great, giving creator put such forethought into one thing, my enjoyment. And the reality is that we are supposed to enjoy this world. We're supposed to enjoy the foods that we eat, and we're supposed to enjoy the sights that we see, and we're supposed to enjoy what my ears bring to me. And when you walk out in the morning and you hear the sounds coming from the woods, hopefully, and you hear the birds chirping, what you're supposed to experience is tremendous joy. Flowers are beautifully colored. Do you know that the bee is largely colorblind? The orchids, the lilacs, the lilies have brilliant shades of coloring, but it's not to attract the bee to pollinate from one to the other because the bee works primarily by a sense of smell. It's seeking out the pollen and it's drawn by the smell of the flower. The color of the flowers are for you and I. And for us to look out in a spring day and see magnificent bushes and say, wow, that is beautiful. There is no functional reason for it. The world didn't need to be this way and didn't have to be that way. The reason why God made it that way is for one reason. Much like if I invite you to my house, I have to treat you properly. Listen, after all, you're my guest. It's only proper. The Chovos Olavovos, the duties of the heart explains that when God created the world, He felt almost a sense of obligation. It's my world. I made it. Into this world, I've invited man. I have to give him everything he needs. I have to take care of his needs, but I can't just do it in a plain way. It can't just be brown potatoes and some beans. God put every effort to make the world beautiful, flavors, aromas, textures, to allow us to have a tremendous enhancement of our experience. And when you begin studying the wisdom that goes into eyesight, the tremendous wisdom that goes into hearing, functioning. And when you begin studying the wisdom in every system and the brain's perception of it, you begin to understand that God has a tremendous concern to benefit us and to give to us. And you begin to get an eye glimpse as to the loving kindliness with which God created the world and wishes for it to run. If you'd like to know the answer to the question, what does it mean that God created the world with 500 measures of good to the bad? The answer is it's accurate 100%. We live in a world replete with such enjoyments and benefits, and if a person trains himself to appreciate it, his life will be blessed, it will be wonderful. From morning to night, there are so many things that bring me enjoyment, that should bring me pleasure. Music didn't have to be. Music is something that God created for our enjoyment. You see, my ear is so attuned that I can hear the highs, the lows, the treble, the bass. I could hear the harmonies. I could discern it. I could perceive it. I could interpret it and enjoy it. But you have to learn how to do that. 
You have to learn how to stop the busyness, how to stop the static of life and actually appreciate it so that when you sit down to a meal, you enjoy the meal. So that when you actually sit down and look at the world, you actually benefit from it. If you'd like a little exercise in what I'm talking about, ask someone how the fourth bite of their favorite dish tastes. I'll grant you, the waiter brings out the dish, and the first bite, mmm, I pay attention to the to the flavors, the aromas, the textures, as it gently hits the top of my palate, as it begins settling down. By the second bite, I'm not really paying that much attention. By the third, I'm really gone. By the fourth, I'm back in conversation, and I'm really not paying attention to whether I'm eating spaghetti or steak or whatever. But that's not the way God wants us to live our lives here. God created so many features so many different elements of this world for one reason, for mankind to benefit, for us to enjoy. And in fact, that ratio of 500 to 1 is accurate. If a person understands life, if a person learns to use this world properly, they'll experience 500 times the pleasure, the joys in their life to the one part of bad. There are pains, there are troubles, there are worries, there are issues in life. No one is going to deny that. That's part of reality. But opposite that are 500 times the benefits, 500 times the pleasures. And the question I'd like to ask now is, so why is it that we don't realize that? Why is it that we don't think about it? Why is it that we don't naturally feel that? And with that question, I have a second question. And this second question, similar to other questions I'm going to ask, I want you to answer right away. I want you to answer this question immediately as soon as I finish asking it. It doesn't have to be out loud that you answer. But as soon as I ask the question, I want you to answer it. Here's the question. The question is, are you rich? Are you rich? But I don't mean in terms of uh, relationships and uh, and, and uh, meaning and purpose in life. I mean in material possessions, in property, in liquid. Are you rich? Are you financially rich? Now, I've asked this question in untold number of audiences to people who are poor and rich and everything in between, and invariably, I won't get a single person rich. I'm rich. So here's a very interesting question. Is that true? Is it true that you're not rich? So let's focus on something that I find very, very compelling. <clears throat> My grandmother grew up in Poland in the 1920s, and she described to me that her family was, they were considered well off. In their house, they had a wood floor. So they were considered better off. They were considered you not know, quite rich, but well to do. Of course, the house consisted of two rooms, but the two rooms meant one room where the parents slept and the other room where the children ate and slept and did their homework and did their chores and everything else. But two rooms. And believe me, the families weren't small and the rooms weren't large. Today in our world, if you take two kids on vacation and you got to put them in a hotel room for a night, oh my God, it's so cramped, there's no, no room. Yet the vast majority of our forebearers, our ancestors, lived in the type of homes that we would consider Uh, unbearable. 
Meaning to say, if you go back a hundred years ago to Europe and study the way most of our ancestors live, you'll see they lived in the most primitive sort of huts where they had holes in the walls where the winter cold would come in. In the summer, they sweltered. The vast majority of these people lived the kind of life that you and I could not imagine. I remember my grandmother telling me that her sister-in-law came to America first. And when my grandmother followed suit, her sister-in-law said to her, you must come into the apartment. You won't believe the luxury. We have in the apartment itself a bathroom. But you see, that was something that they didn't have growing up. Because in Europe in the 1920s even, the vast majority of people went to an outhouse. That means in the freezing cold, you left the comfort of your home, whatever that comfort was, and you went out to the back. And the idea of running water, the idea of electricity didn't exist. I'll give you one more for instance as an example. My father told me he had a friend who was in yeshiva in Europe. And this was also somewhere in that time period, maybe the 1930s, and he had a boarding room. He had a room that he rented, and he would go to sleep in that room. He had a way to tell whether that was a cold morning when he woke up or not such a cold morning. He would leave the vessel for washing hands. There is a Jewish custom to have the vessel right away close to the bed where you wash your hands until it's your dime right there. He would leave a vessel with water right next to his bed to immediately wash when he woke up. And before he got out from under the covers, he would sort of take the cover off his head and he would look in the vessel. If the water had frozen over, it was a cold morning. If the water hadn't frozen over, it was a comfortable morning. But here's the point. Water doesn't freeze at 65 degrees. Water freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. That means a man slept in that room and it was often under 32 degrees in the room that he slept. Today in our world, when it gets below 62, oh, come on, I'm going to live at 62? I mean, the heater breaks and, and at 55, you expect me to live here? And immediately you go somewhere else to live because if your furnace breaks and the house goes below 50, you and I aren't going to live there. We're not going to sleep there. And if you study our lifestyle and look back 100 years ago to everyone else's lifestyle, you'll find there's so little basis of comparison. We live in the lap of luxuries that were unimaginable 100 years ago. I'll share with you one more interesting observation. In the 1950s, in the United States of America, movie theaters bragged about being air-cooled. You see, there was this new innovation called air cooling, and the only places that really had it that could afford it were the large theaters, and so you went to the movie theater with the additional advantage of having it being air-conditioned. As a matter of fact, there are many, many pictures you can go online and see of people in the 1920s and 1930s in the tenements in Brooklyn and Manhattan sleeping on the fire escape. Why is it that in the summer people would sleep out, they'd move their mattresses and etc. onto the fire escape? And because there was no such thing as air conditioning and certainly not the regular you and I kind of people didn't have it. Yet today we get into air-conditioned cars, go into air-conditioned office, <clears throat> come home to air-cooled homes. We live with the type of luxuries that people a hundred years ago could not imagine, could not envision. If you've ever seen a house built before World, I, World War II, 
I'll share with you an important observation. The rooms might be quite large. The living room, the dining room, even the bedrooms might be quite large. But unless the house was refinished, I guarantee the closets are tiny. Now, why is it? Why is it that before World War II, they would build nice-sized homes, big living room, big dining room, big bedroom, and tiny closets? It was the 1920s, 1930s in America. And why they built such tiny closets? Well, the answer is that builders in those days built homes for people who lived there. The average man had a suit or two. The average woman had a dress or two. So they built tiny closets because that's all the clothing that a person needs. And you'll find big, beautiful homes, tiny closets, unless they were refinished later. My brother was a little older than I, and he was working on Madison Avenue right after college. I was still in yeshiva, and I brought home some of my friends one time, and my brother was in the basement. He was this young, single fellow who had a job, and we opened the basement door to his closet. We needed to get something, and one of my friends saw his closet. And my friend said to me, do, do you guys have a, a men's suit store in your basement? Because there were 15 suits, and one after laid out. Because a young fellow who has a job in America, single, has enough discretion and income, you're going to dress nicely, you need a few suits, this color, that color, that color. But think about it. The average person in Europe didn't own a suit of clothing. If you went to the synagogue on Rosh Hashanah, on Yom Kippur, in Slobodka, in any of the large towns in Europe, and you looked around the synagogue, and the average person was not wearing a suit. And it wasn't because uh, sports jackets were in. It really was a simple thing. You got a suit when you got married. And you wore that suit very proudly to your wedding, and you took good care of it. And, of course, the next occasion you wore it, and the next occasion, the next occasion. Well, after a while, you kind of wore holes, you put some patches on, and put some more patches and more patches. Well, the next time that you would get a suit would be your daughter's wedding. Well, guess what? Between your wedding and your daughter's wedding were quite a few years. So what happened would be, patch and patch, eventually you'd have to get a new jacket, no one could afford a whole new suit, so you get another jacket maybe, or another pair of pants maybe, and the average man who would be in a synagogue would be wearing a jacket and a pants that didn't match. Today, that's not our world. My Rebbe, my mentor, grew up in the United States of America in the Depression era, and he told me something very, very interesting. He would be walking, and at a certain point, as a young boy, he wore a hole in this pair of shoes. And he didn't have the audacity to ask his father for a quarter. But here was the problem. There was a hole in, his, in the sole of his shoes. And every time he walked, he would rub out the socks, and he would create a hole in it. So he didn't know what to do. He finally figured out a solution. He took a piece of cardboard and put it into the shoe, He'd step on the cardboard. Now, when he went over any rocks or whatever, he would rub out the cardboard, not a sock. Great, clever solution. Until he hit a puddle, gone was his solution. Do you know anyone who can't afford to repair a pair of shoes? Maybe we don't repair shoes because they're out of style or it doesn't pay. But if you open the average person in our world's closet, you'll see brown shoes and black shoes and gray shoes and tennis shoes. Heaven forfend to play basketball in running shoes. And we have every different sort of imaginable accessory. I knew a woman who lived in a three-bedroom apartment. The third bedroom she made into her closet with a cleaning rack that went around. 
And the average person that we know has so much clothing that if you were to go back a hundred years ago and explain to them what we own, they would never believe you. The famous line in Fiddler on a Roof, if I were a rich man, I would have a new shirt, a new white shirt every day. I'm not a rich man. I have a new white shirt every day. Bring it to the cleaners, and it comes back pressed and beautiful. And the minute we need something else, we go to the store and we buy it. But we're not talking about phenomenally wealthy people. We're not talking about Rothschilds and mega billionaires. The average person in our world has plenty, has abundance, that if you would look back 100 years ago, they would never believe you. And if you're not sure that I'm right, try a spiritual experience on me. Walk into Walmart. Walk into Walmart and look out at 75,000 square feet of goods that are available for sale. And by and large, we have enough money to buy what we need, whether it be undergarments or outer garments, rain gear or whatever. And when you focus on the fact that historically that wasn't the way it used to be, you realize something interesting. As an observation, one of the greatest challenges in our world, certainly in terms of health, is keeping slim, right? Meaning, by and large in America, almost 65% of people in America are, are overweight. And in terms of obesity, it's not that far behind. Yet amazingly, if you look at pictures of people in America 100 years ago, what you find is everyone was rail thin. Now, isn't that strange? Everyone 100 years ago, certainly look at pictures by the Civil War time period, everyone was thin as a rail, and now everyone is quite large. What, what, What happened? What happened was that historically, mankind had enough money barely to afford the necessities, and to have enough food that you could actually get fat was not the thing that you and I, regular people, could afford. In Europe, there was something called a balbusser. A balbusser was a corpulent man. When he walked around town, people, ooh, he's a rich man. Because the only person who could be that large, who could afford meat and potatoes and bread in excess, was a man who was really wealthy. Now, in our world, the lower down you are in the socioeconomic strata, more likely the more problems you have with obesity because food is so plentiful, so available. But it's an astonishing wealth that we long ago forgot to appreciate. If you study the wealth of the average man today, compare it to people 200 years ago, you'll be absolutely astonished. And here's one more observation to put this into perspective. There's a famous portrait of the King of England right around the Revolutionary War period. Now, everyone knows George Washington was the American general who led the Revolutionary War, but who was the King of England at that time period? So, as you probably remember from grade school, it was King George. And I remember a famous picture of King George sitting on the throne. There's King George wearing a very heavy fur coat. And on top of the heavy fur coat is a very big pelt. And on top of that big pelt is another fur. And this big King George of England, big and huge, on top of his throne. Why is it that King George was wearing a heavy fur, a pelt on top of that, and another fur on top of it? 
The reason was that the portrait was painted in the winter in Buckingham Palace. And in Buckingham Palace, it was cold. How did you heat the palace? And there was a fireplace over yonder. Fireplace has radiant heat, right? It radiates, uh, radiates out the heat. So if it radiates out this way, maybe the king's front is warm, but the king's back is mighty cold. So what does the king do? Turn around, so now very nice. His back is warm, now his front is cold. You see, the king with the crown jewels could not heat Buckingham Palace to a comfortable level. The king of England walked down smelly, dark, dank hallways at night. The emperor of Great Britain got into a bed at night made of 36 inches of down feather. Have you ever lied on a down pillow? Your back goes... And there's no chiropractor in the morning to kind of put you back together. But even more than that, when the king of England was invited to the earl's wedding, and he traveled to the Earl of France's wedding, he got into the royal coach. Now, isn't that luxury? The royal coach, pulled by 12 white steeds. What luxury! Wow! What opulence! What wealth! Until you study the fact that the royal coach had wooden wheels. And the roads were filled with potholes. And the king in the royal coach, pulled by the 12 white steeds, went on roads filled with potholes for seven days straight. He was shaking and barely could speak.
and she realizes she doesn't have a clue how to get back. She begins running and running. And this goes on day after day. And finally she's famished. She eats some berries and some bark from the trees. She's barely keeping herself alive. And she spends a year lost in the forest. Finally, after a year with tattered clothing, emaciated, she sees in a clearing a shack. And it's a simple shack, obviously made by some woodcutter. And she's starving, and she goes into the shack, and she sees some porridge. She gobbles it down, and she hasn't eaten in her life, and she quickly falls asleep. A little while later, she hears some rustling, and she sees this woodsman comes in. He's a rather primitive fellow, and rather coarse. And a primitive fellow sees her. He doesn't know who she is. She doesn't know who he is. He's a kindly fellow. He offers her something to eat. And in fact, she stays in that shack. Each day, the woodsman goes out to work. And each day, the woodsman brings her back something, brings her food, and they brings her flowers. And before you know it, there's a romantic relationship. The princess says to herself, listen, I'm never going to make it back to the palace anyway. Eventually, she marries that woodsman. And she leads her life in that shack. And she leads a life very, very different than the one she had in the palace. But you see, it's not just that she has to work so hard, not just that it's cold, but anything that the woodsman brings her has no value to her. She was brought up on satin and silk, his coarse sheets, don't mean anything. He carves for her some beads made of wood, and she remembers the pearls that were delicately inlaid with gold that she had been given when she was six years old. And no matter what he tries to give her, it doesn't have value to her because she's from a way, way higher strata. It explains the path of the just that that is a parable to us. You see, there are two parts of me. Part of me is the body, that's the primitive, and part of me is the neshama, the soul, and the neshama is much like that princess. And that neshama aspires for greatness, my soul within me wishes to accomplish great things and do tremendous, tremendous things. And anything that I try to provide to my soul of physical interest, whether it be money or fame or whatever it is, doesn't fill me. And unless I actually learn how to feed my soul, unless I actually learn the system and learn what it needs, it will be ever hungry and it will ever look down on what I bring in and say, so what? Do you understand why it is that people run after money, run, 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 spend their whole life, and they finally make it, and they make it big, wow, I made it. And they're as empty as they were before. And they pursue more money, and more fame, and more honor, and there's that same vacuous emptiness inside. If you don't learn to feed your soul, well, guess what? It's going to be unhappy. And you are going to be unhappy. And if you'd like to see the manifestation of that, just look at at our world. Every material pleasure, every physical comfort. So why aren't people happy? They're not happy because they forgot why we're here. They forgot why God put us here, why God put us onto the planet. They forgot to feed their soul. And so they run around in a state of unhappiness. God gave us the Torah, a very clear guidance book. Yes, it's the guidebook for spiritual perfection, but you have to understand why it's so significant. Because the manufacturer of man, man's creator, wrote the instruction book. This is how to lead your life. 
And this is how to lead a beautiful, happy life with purpose, with meaning. Follow this system and you'll enjoy this world. There's a much bigger picture, a much bigger reason why you're here. But God is a native. God is a giver. And God wants us to enjoy our world here. God wants us to enjoy the sights, the sun, and the things we experience. But you have to be in balance to do that. And I think that this point is so powerful in our day. When you study the tremendous wisdom that God put into the world strictly for us to enjoy, when you look at the sights, when you look at oceans, when you look at rivers, and you see beauty, you're supposed to experience tremendous enjoyment from it. But there has to be an inner peace for that to happen. And when you and you are in sync, and when your soul's needs are met, there is a tremendous joy, there's a balance, there's a happiness. But if you provide for your body, and you provide and you provide, and you give it everything under the sun, but the princess within you remains empty, well, guess what? She's not going to be very happy, and there's going to be a sense within you. What am I accomplishing? What am I doing? What do you want to do? I'm doing, I'm doing, I'm enjoying my... But what are you doing for others? What are you doing to grow? What are you doing? What are you, I'm just doing, what, leave me alone. And I want to share with you probably the most frightening thought you'll ever have. There is a voice inside you, that voice of your soul that drives deeply for meaning, for purpose, to accomplish great things, and you can never quiet that voice. You could run from it, you could hide from it, you could try to push it aside, but if you do anything but actually meet that voice, it will bother you and bother you. You wake up in the middle of the night in a sense of tremor, what am I doing? What am I accomplishing? And it's not the way life is supposed to be led. God wants us to be happy here. God gave us a Torah, all of the mitzvahs, the system for growth. But you have to follow it. You have to learn it. You have to engage in it. When you do, you feed your soul. You enjoy this world. And then you lead a life of beauty, a life of wealth, a life of riches. May God allow us to do that and grant us the serenity to actually put this into practice. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.